Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll go to an historic reenactment at Fort Mose Historic State Park. This is a reenactment of the surprise attack in June of 1740 that the Spanish soldiers from St. Augustine, the black militia from Fort Mose, and Yamasi auxiliaries launched to recapture the Fort Mose uh, site from British and for British and Scottish invaders from Georgia and Carolina. We'll visit Flamingo Gardens, where the natural environment of the Everglades is preserved. Both of them were world travelers, and they went all around the place, and as they traveled around the world, they collected specimens of tropical trees and tropical plants. And so whenever they developed the citrus groves, they planted, they called it a botanical garden at that time. We'll explore the relationship between writer Zora Neale Hurston and the Smathers family. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's the sound of historic reenactors as they present the bloody battle of Fort Mose from 1740 for a modern audience. Fort Mose Historic State Park is located just north of St. Augustine. The National Historic Landmark is the site of Fort Mose, constructed in 1738 as the first legally sanctioned African settlement in what is now the United States. Thomas Jackson is vice president of the Fort Mose Historical Society. When I first got started with the society, um, there was nothing here but just open vacant land. Actually, most of the property that was uh, under control of the Florida Park Service was in the marshland and it was under underwater. But we were able to secure these uplands that's adjacent to the park, the actual site that the Park Service owned. And through purchasing the, the uplands, we, uh, we were able to develop them. We put um, a canoe dock, which is, uh, goes out over the boardwalk, over, over the marsh. We also have a, a museum, 3,000 square foot. Um, and we also have a $750,000 uh, inter in, interactive, interpretive um, um, museum where there's um, the exhibits actually respond to your movement throughout the, the museum itself. Um, that's part of it. Now, one, a couple of things that we've also done is, is put on reenactments like the Flight to Freedom in February. We do this particular event, the, the anniversary of the Bloody Battle of Mose, which is always done in June. And at the end of every month, we do a living history program this, the last weekend of each month of the year. So a lot of things going on here now that before you had to pretty much use your imagination. In 1740, James Oglethorpe led a British raid that destroyed the original Fort Mose. It would be 12 years before the settlement was reconstructed. Davis Walker is president of Florida Living History Incorporated. 
For the past several years, his group has been coordinating with others to reenact the bloody battle of Fort Mose. This is a reenactment of the surprise attack in June of 1740 that the Spanish soldiers from St. Augustine, the black militia from Fort Mose, and Yamasi auxiliaries launched to recapture the Fort Mose、uh, site from British, and, from British and Scottish invaders from Georgia and Carolina.、Uh, the attack was launched at about just before dawn, let's put it that way. The, the、uh, defending forces were caught completely by surprise and basically massacred. The importance of this particular event is that it ended the British invasion of Florida in 1740. Fort Mose was the northernmost line of defense for St. Augustine. Although Fort Mose was destroyed in the attack, the British forces were repelled by the Fort Mose soldiers and driven back into Georgia. Florida Living History presents a variety of historical reenactments throughout the year, but the Battle of Fort Mose provides an opportunity to collaborate with other reenactors. We've always thought that this would make such a unique Living History event because it involves European, Black, and Native American elements. Uh, happily, our friends at the Florida Park Service and, and here at Fort Mose encourage that very, very strongly and have been working hand in hand with us ever since to, to grow this event. Also, the Fort Mose Historical Society, a volunteer group that supports the park, has, has、uh, taken part, has, has leapt in to do their bit.、Uh, we started fairly small, I think. We have、uh, British and Scottish troops who come down from, Fort,、uh, from Darien, from Fort King George. And from Fort Frederica to reenact the, the invading side. There are groups from all, literally all over Florida that participate on the Spanish side. There is a reenacting group here at Fort Mose itself, the Fort Mose Militia, which participates. We're fortunate in that we have a, a several、uh, Yamasi reenactors from St. Augustine, from Tampa, and other, elsewhere around the state to play up the Spanish side. Thomas Jackson of the Fort Mose Historical Society wears a colorful blue coat and tri cornered hat as part of his colonial costume. In this reenactment, he's portraying a member of the Fort Mose militia. Usually, Jackson performs the role of Francisco Menendez, captain of the Mose militia. He was a born in Mandinga, and then he was、um, actually sold into slavery three times. He,、um, he fought with the Yamasee Indians up at the Yamasee Wars up in the Carolinas. And、um, the British actually defeated the Yamasee at that time. But then the Yamasee and all of the runa runaways came down towards Spanish Florida. And they actually、uh, was able to live in this area. Now, Menendez was betrayed by a Yamasee, which、um, a mad dog, I mean, a cacique called Mad Dog. And what Mad Dog did was、uh, turned him in and he was actually went back into slavery. And then he escaped a third time. That third time he escaped, he was able to petition the governor of、uh, Spanish Florida, Governor Montiano. And, he, and Governor Montiano actually sent a,、um, a cover letter for Francisco Menendez's petition to the King of Spain. Now, as I understand it, no response came back from the King of Spain, but for the governor to do that, it was meant that his. Uh, Francisco Menendez's authority and stature carried some weight with the governor. Now, now as Francisco Menendez,、um, I spoke three languages I spoke Mandinga, I spoke Spanish, and I spoke English. 
So I was able to welcome all of the uh, runaway slaves and also ne negotiate with the Indians and with the Spanish and be a kind of a conduit between them. On most days, Brian Bowman is a preservation craftsman repairing old buildings. Today, though, he's a member of the St. Augustine Garrison, a company of the historic Florida militia, portraying a private soldier of the Spanish king. We're commemorating, uh, recreating just in a sense of what happened here uh, in 1740. And there was a fortress that had been knocked down pretty much, an out, out fortress, Fort Mose, that was a free black fort. But they were black militia troops of the Spanish army. So they had had to abandon that place with their town around it and go back to St. Augustine uh, when the English arrived. And, of course, the English uh, seized this position and um, put some uh, flying column out here. Most of the troops were up north uh, a little further and up on Fort Diego's. Uh, were over on the islands here. Um, with artillery bombarding the fort, laying in their siege. They had ships at sea. The English did. So here they have a small detail of men, a hundred and something men, and the Spanish decided to come out in the dark of night to maneuver into position to siege them. And some of the black, free black men, the black militia men, were a company of them were here in this three columns that came against this position, like 300 men against the hundred and... 30 men or 150, whatever they were. So that's what we were recreating that moment with several columns of Spanish coming against the few Englishmen guarding their fort. And that was the scene that we tried to recreate with uh, fewer men and close to the original position. It's only a couple hundred yards from us where the original fortress was and the original town. So we're right on the same ground. This is grazing land or cornfield at that time. Andrew Batten is director of attractions at the Brevard Zoo in Melbourne, but he travels to St. Augustine and elsewhere to participate in historic reenactments. At the bloody battle of Fort Mose, Batten is portraying a member of the South Carolina Rangers, one of James Oglethorpe's militiamen. At Fort Mose here, you had 137 British troops, and that was combined from a number of different sources. You had regular troops of the 42nd Regiment. You had Carolina Rangers. You had South Carolina Rangers. Um, you had Georgia Rangers. And then you also had uh, some Scots from from Georgia as well. And so one of the difficulties is it's not a disciplined force. You have two different commanders who don't agree. Uh, you have four different units within this, um, all doing things different ways. The other problem you have is that you have soldiers like myself who are trying to make a little money on the side because if I capture Spanish horses, I can sell them to the British Army. And I can make much more money doing that than I can doing my job. And so uh, the South Carolinians who were here, unfortunately, were poorly led. They had poor morale, uh, very poor discipline. And so you see the results in, the, in what became known as Bloody Mose. 137 men here, 25 got out unharmed or uncaptured or alive. For more than 50 years before the Battle of Fort Mose in 1740, the Spanish government had been granting asylum to runaway slaves from British colonies who could make it to Spanish-controlled Florida. Recapturing runaway slaves was one goal of the raid on Fort Mose. Shana Golden is the head chef for Florida Living History, preparing period food for the reenactors. Yes, we are actually. Uh, we started the day with uh, a type of Spanish food called a fabada. Uh, fabada has uh, chorizo sausage. It also has uh, pork, uh, lots of garlic, bay leaves, other spices and herbs, and garbanzo beans. And it's a very hearty type of stew. 
um, really kind of sticks to your ribs. <laughs> well, favada is a very old recipe. Uh, we have several sources that have different types of recipes for different types of favada. Um, this particular type of fabada is indicative of the Asturias region of Spain. Um, we we kind of have a lot of different sources and resources that we use to come up with different recipes, um, all of which are you can easily find if you're searching for recipes for a particular century. Um, usually you'll find them in collections um, as such. Uh, this particular recipe we obtained from a book called uh, La Cuisine de Flibustier. Uh, it's a French cookbook um, that has a lot of 17th, 18th century recipes. Through historic reenactments and an on-site interpretive center, Fort Mose Historic State Park tells the story of diverse groups of people working together toward a common goal. Thomas Jackson. Well, we like to think that Fort Mose being the first black freed settlement in what is now the United States, but was at that time Spanish Florida, is a story that must be told for the kids especially, in, uh, and we're talking about Florida history and Spanish history, but also we wanted the kids to understand that even though being at Fort Mose, you would think that everybody at Fort Mose got along hunky-dory and all, but the thing is, uh, the story we want to tell is that there were a lot of different tribes represented at Mose, and back in the motherland, they may have been at each other's throat, they may have been at war, they may have been fighting, but at Fort Mose, they had a common interest a common bond. It was something they were moving towards, a common objective, and they were able to live together and realize that objective. Fort Mose Historic State Park is located two miles north of St. Augustine. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society to receive our daily post on This Day in Florida History, and visit our website at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming special events and much more. If you click on the Join Now button, you can receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features historian Gary Mormino. In 1528, a Spanish expedition led by Panfilo de Narvaez landed near Tampa Bay with five ships and several hundred men. After they marched north and disappeared into the Florida wilderness, Narvaez's wife dispatched a small party to reconnoiter Tampa Bay in hopes of finding her husband. The Tocobaga Indians slaughtered the hapless Spaniards, sparing only one young man, Juan Ortiz. After enduring torture, the chief prepared to fling Ortiz upon the fire, but a young Indian woman pleaded for his life. Thus began the first great captivity narrative in American history. A decade later, the intrepid Hernando de Soto set out from Cuba with 600 men, 237 horses, 200 pigs, a dozen Catholic priests, and two women to conquer La Florida. Along the way, he rescued the seemingly doomed Juan Ortiz, whose newfound skills at speaking and translating Indian dialects would prove very useful. 
University of South Florida historian Gary Marmino. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. When I get in the Illinois, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 can't you line it? Can't you move it? Writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston is one of the most significant cultural figures from Florida. As Janie Gould reports, Hurston had a special relationship with one of Florida's most prominent families. An enduring political legend in Florida has it that U.S. Senator Claude Pepper was soundly defeated back in 1950 because of some fancy words that his opponent, George Smathers, uttered to mislead backwoods voters. Example, Smathers supposedly accused Pepper of practicing celibacy before his marriage. At the time, African-American writer Zora Neale Hurston was helping Smathers' father, Judge Frank Smathers, write his autobiography. She supported George Smathers. Author Lynn Moylan writes about this in her new book about Hurston's last decade. She had this great slogan that she made up for him, you can't make a meal out of Pepper. And that's interesting because Pepper might have been considered quite a bit more liberal than Smathers. When you look at the historical time period, you'll find that George Smathers was less racist than Claude Pepper. Claude Pepper made speeches promising that he would do nothing to change the Southern customs. Like the poll tax? Exactly. Another political issue that hurt Claude Pepper and that encouraged Hurston to support Smathers is that Claude Pepper was a supporter of Stalin. Did Zora's support for Smathers bring in some black votes? I would think that it did. She promoted the fact that Smathers was a supporter of the black population being able to attend games at the Orange Bowl. He did believe that integration was something to be desired, but he, like Hurston, felt that it should be done gradually. George Smathers has been criticized for making a speech that he never made. Which one was that? It's the infamous thespian. His sister was a thespian in New York or something like that? Claude Pepper's sister? really, really, really awful. When I talked to Bruce Matters about this, he said what people don't realize is that even though this infamous speech was supposed to be delivered to the poor backwood residents of North Florida, for Smathers to have quoted things like, are you aware that Claude Pepper is known all over Washington as a shameless extrovert, would have been an insult to the businessmen and the attorneys and the teachers that were also in North Florida. The Miami Herald and other newspapers had people following them around, writing down every single thing they said. There was not one person who could come forward and claim that he made those statements. He didn't call Pepper Red Pepper? No, actually, that came from the Washington Post. Pepper was going around the country supporting Stalin. The Washington Post was upset by that. Besides consulting Bruce Smathers, who is George Smathers' son, Moylan says she studied Pepper biographies, and research the historical record. Hurston has been soundly criticized for supporting Smathers, but whenever you look at the record, you can understand why she would support
Alice Smathers. Did she have an effect on the outcome, in your opinion? I don't think so. She worked with George Smathers' cantankerous father, Southern conservative. How did that work out? Well, the best way I would describe it is working with Judge Smathers to Hurston was like running against the wind of a Category 5 hurricane. That's not what she said. No, that's how I describe it. According to his son, he had a beastly disposition, and he was a bigoted Southern man. It made it very difficult for him at first to accept the fact that Hurston could complete this intellectual task that he could not. As time went on, he began to see that Zora was brilliant. With his own family, Frank Smathers used to provoke arguments and then cover his ears to shut out responses, Moylan said. He tried the same tactic with Hurston. Whenever he would plug his fingers up after an argument, she would actually inform him that he would listen to her. He simply (laughs) pulled his fingers out and went on talking. The book was published privately. Do you think she really got into his psyche? No, it wasn't noteworthy. Vanity Press? Oh, yeah. She did not put her talent into it. He pretty much dictated it to her. She was a stenographer, sort of. Pretty much. But she got the job done. And nobody else could deal with it. Janie Gould prepared that report. Oh, the roast of tobacco, the hand dip of snuff. The biddy can't do it, but he struts his stuff. Shove it over. Hey, 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 you can't you line that? Oh, shackle, lacka, 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 ah, can't you move it? Hey, 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 you can't you try? Yeah, I'm a woman walking across the field, a mouth exhausting like an automobile. Shove it over. Hey, 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 you can't you line that? Oh, shackle, lacka, 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 lacka. Can't you move it? Hey, hey, can't you try? The captain got a pistol, he tried to play bad. But I'm going to take it if it make me mad. Shove it over. Hey, hey, can't you line that? Ah, shackle, lacka, 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 lacka. Can't you move it? Hey, 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 can't you try? This is Florida Frontiers. South Florida's Flamingo Gardens preserves the natural Florida. Monica Barra takes us there. A walk through the Flamingo Gardens aviary located in the town of Davie transports you to the wetland marshes and mangroves of the Florida Everglades. The actual Everglades are 15 miles west of the park. Spoonbills, egrets, and pelicans roam freely here to greet visitors at one of South Florida's first tourist attractions and one of the area's best-kept secrets. It's kind of paralleled the involvement of Florida right up until now whenever there's an awareness of protecting the Everglades. Keith Clark, Flamingo Gardens. That's our primary mission now here is to educate people about the Everglades and protecting the native wildlife and protecting the native flora and fauna here. Although it boasts wildlife ranging from alligators to bald eagles, Flamingo Gardens isn't a zoo, nor is it a traditional botanical garden. None of the plants are perfectly groomed or symmetrical. In fact, from the entrance, Flamingo Gardens blends in with the dozens of other plant nurseries that line Flamingo Road. But the 60 acres of Flamingo Gardens are here to preserve the natural environment of Florida. Mr. and Mrs. Ray came down here in 1926. Uh, Originally, Mr. Ray came down to work for uh, Mr. Young, who was developing homes in the Hollywood area. When he came down here, he kind of fell in love with the place and he realized the potential that South Florida potentially had to raise exotic, tropical fruits, uh, especially oranges. 
over the years, they expanded the Flamingo Grows, the uh, fruit citrus shipping business, and it was up to 3,000 acres at one point. Flamingo Groves easily became the largest in South Florida. Situated on a raised hammock along the edges of the Big Swamp, the Rays had sufficient dry land to produce large quantities of quality citrus. Floyd Ray was instrumental in bringing the railroad this far south in the state and also in developing Port Everglades to use as his main shipping point. However, it was their interest in exotic plants which set the Rays apart from other citrus industry giants at the time. Both of them were world travelers, and they went all around the place, and as they traveled around the world, they collected specimens of tropical trees and tropical plants. And so whenever they developed the citrus groves, they planted, they called it a botanical garden at that time, and they planted different kinds of citrus trees, and they developed a laboratory where they would experiment with uh, developing new kinds of oranges and tangelos and grapefruit. The United States government would send them uh, plants and, and trees from other subtropical areas to plant here to see if they would grow. So the United States uh, Agriculture Department started to send them plants in the early 30s, and they would plant them in, in the area. And that was really the beginning of the botanical collection as we know it. To attract visitors, Jane Ray brought wildlife to the gardens, which included the legendary flamingos that once roamed wild in the area. The Ray Weekend Home and their adjacent barbecue house in the gardens are still standing, so visitors can get a glimpse of what life was like in swampy rural South Florida. She just enjoyed entertaining and inviting the public in, and they gave tours of the groves and of the, the botanical gardens. And it just slowly developed into almost a tourist attraction. Mr. Ray and, and Mrs. Ray were always concerned with preserving the area um, and making it available to the public. And he was very concerned with uh, talking about the Everglades and the cultural history of the area. And he asked in his, you know, when he was dying that they preserve it. And so Mrs. Ray created the uh, Floyd L. Ray Memorial Foundation upon his death in 1965 that preserved the area for the public and uh, later it was changed to Flamingo Gardens. However, Flamingo Gardens today no longer operates as an orange grove. It is now home to the largest collection of native wildlife in the state. Visitors are mainly drawn to the animals, but others still come to see the gardens, which boast 16 of the state's champion trees. In the 80s, they decided to develop this wildlife sanctuary, and they built the uh, bird of prey exhibit. And then in 1990, uh, they started on the aviary, and then that opened up in 1991. So we just celebrated our 20th anniversary for the open-air aviary. And it became one of the first wildlife sanctuaries in the country that housed permanently injured animals uh, permanently. And their whole concept was that they wanted to give native wildlife a place to live and educate you know, kids about preserving nature and appreciating the Everglades. And so they um, started to focus on native wildlife. That's what makes this place unique of all the different zoos and all the other botanical gardens is it doesn't have that commercial feeling to it that it's completely organic, it is what it is. It was built from the heart by people who cared and loved the area. Keith Clark is the director of development at Flamingo Gardens. He says locals and tourists alike pass through each day, 
surprised that such a wilderness still exists along the busy streets of South Florida. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Monica Barra. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week. You can also like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.